Welcome to another episode of Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Kelly Williams agent. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? I'm sure you're asking yourself that right now. RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. Folks, this group's about networking, doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Ria, all right? No guru bullshit from the front, no smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. RDI is also this podcast and many podcasts on this network where we sit down with people, we have different formats, and we discuss interesting things with successful business people getting shit done, and I uh, pick their brain for entertainment and hopefully education. And by the way, I looked, man, we're up to 48 reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much. We need like 480, but 48 is a damn fine number considering a couple months ago we just had, I think, 17. So you guys are kicking ass. So if you haven't already, go on to iTunes and rate and review. That's really one of the biggest things you can do to help grow the podcast. In fact, if there's one thing you could do, and there's only one thing, and you could only choose to do one thing, Rate and review on iTunes. And I know they don't make it easy, so I really appreciate everybody who has done it. If you haven't done it yet and you like the podcast, take the time and go do it. Hook a brother up. I would really appreciate it. Also, share it across the internet. Um, I would prefer if you sh- when you share it um, if you tagged me. So I, I just want to say thank you. Really, that's all I want to do. So, I've, But for those who share it and you don't tag, you don't use the Facebook pages, that's fine. Thank you, too. I don't get to see them, but I know you're doing it because I see the podcast growing. So... I really do appreciate it. And occasionally I catch you guys sharing something without tagging me or anything. And I go, thank you there too. But if I didn't thank you, it's because I didn't see it. All right. And that's why I want to see it. So, um, or maybe send me a message or something like that. I don't know. Just let me know because I want to say thank you. I really appreciate it every time you guys share it. I know you have lots of other things to do. So, thank you. If you're interested uh, or you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegadedetroitinvestors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. They're still figuring the Snapchat shit out, so bear with me. And youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. All right. Legal disclaimer. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment or investment or investment decisions, that you contact a lawyer and or attorney and or other licensed professionals. In general, we recommend you uh, be a fucking adult, not sue me. Thank you. All right, folks. Um, before I head into the show quote, we're doing something different this week. Um. First of all, I had some shit happened in my life. Well, it didn't happen, but it's going down. So it's going to be, it's kind of a setback. Um, also, I'm just kind of tired. So I need some more time to get better guests on and prepare better. And I've had this idea for book reviews for a while. And I just don't have time, or I should say I haven't made the time to do a traditional book review. Uh, but I wanted to try and I'm doing an experiment. I like experimenting. I'm sure you guys know. So I'm going to try an experiment where... I'm not going to pick a book I haven't read, but I'm going to pick books I've read a few times, and we will do it together. I will read it, and we will do it live. And so you're going to get like my initial thoughts, my my first thought. You know, I'm I'm going to be highlighting and writing, and uh, I recommend you do the same thing with me. So hit pause, and here's the book you need. Go on the Amazon, 
Um, links in the uh, show notes too. If you want to help a brother out, I get a little piece of that if you do that. Um, if not, doesn't matter if you already have it. That's cool. Also, the audiobook link, which I love audiobooks. As you can tell, I'm an audio kind of guy. I love audio. So we're going to go, the, we're gonna, the first book we're going to do is The One Thing. And this is by Gary K. Uh, Keller. So this is like the, this is one of the Keller Williams Bibles, right? We've been reading a lot with the Dealey Group. And uh, I like it. I don't know if you're like me. You get too busy, get doing lots of things. You know, this, this book, I think, really helps. So pause, go buy it. Um, let's read it together. We're going to give this a shot. All right. So time for the Renegade Short Investors Show Quote of the Week, where I pick a quote and that hopefully sets a tone for this podcast and hopefully your week. So obviously, I'm going with a Russian proverb here. It's out of the book. This is right out of The One Thing by Gary Keller. If you chase two rabbits, you will not catch either one. If you chase two rabbits, you will not catch either one. All right. So I'm not sure how far we're going to get today. I figure we're going to keep this to an hour, to an hour and a half. All right. So we'll see how it goes. This is highly experimental. So bear with me. All right. Let me turn my iPad off. Just me today. You listen to the sultry sounds of Jeremy Burgess. We're doing a live reading and studying of the one thing, part one, chapter one, the one thing. There's a quote in the corner, be like a postage stamp, stick to one thing until you get there. Josh Billings on June 7th, 1991, the earth moved for 112 minutes. Not really, but it felt that way. I was watching the hit comedy city slickers and audience laughter rattled and rocked the theater. Considered one of the funniest movies of all time, but also sprinkled in unexpected doses of wisdom and insight. In one memorable scene, Curly, the greedy cowboy played by the late Jack Palance, a city slicker, Mitch, played by Billy Crystal, leave the group to search for stray cattle. Although they had clashed for most of the movie, riding along together, they finally connect over a conversation about life. Suddenly, Curly reins in his horse to a stop and turns in the saddle to face Mitch. Curly, do you know what the secret of life is? Mitch, know what? Curly holds up one finger. This. Mitch, your finger? Curly, one thing. Just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean shit. Mitch, that's great, but what's the one thing? Curly, that's what you've got to figure out. Out of the mouth of a fictional character to our ears comes the secret of success. Whether the writers knew it or unwittingly stumbled on it, what they wrote was the absolute truth. The one thing is the best approach to getting what you want. I didn't get this until much later. I'd experienced success in the past, but it wasn't until I hit a wall that I began to connect my results with my approach. In less than a decade, we'd built a successful company with national and international ambitions, but all of a sudden things weren't working out. For all the dedication and hard work, my life was in turmoil and it felt as if everything was crumbling around me. I was failing. Something had to give. Hold on, let's go back. Boy, oh boy. For all the dedication and hard work, my life was in turmoil and it felt like everything was crumbling around me. I was failing. Shit, dude, I've been there. Been there hardcore. I'm going to highlight that. That's hit me for some reason. I think Joe, Joe Delia, 
says this to me all the time. Sometimes what gets us there is not what's going to get us in the next, uh, <clears throat> to our next success. You know, what got me here won't get me there. That kind of thing. Something had to give back to the book at the end of a short rope that looked eerily like a noose. I sought help and found it in a form of a coach. I walked him through my situation and talked through the challenges I faced, both personal and professional. We revisited my goals and the trajectory I wanted for my life. And with a full grasp of the issues, he set out in search of answers. His research was thorough. When we get back together, he had my organizational chart, essentially a bird's eye view of the entire company up on the wall. Our discussion started with a simple question. Do you know what you need to do to turn things around? I hadn't a clue. He said there was only one thing I needed to do. He had identified 14 positions that needed new faces, and he believed that with the right individuals in those key spots, the company, my job, and my life would see a radical change for the better. I was shocked. I let him know I thought it would take a lot more than that. He said, no, Jesus needed 12, but you'll need 14. It was a transformational moment. I had never considered how so few could change so much. What became obvious is that... As focused as I thought I was, I wasn't focused enough. Finding 14 people was clearly the most important thing I could do. So based on this meeting, I made a huge decision. I fired myself. I stepped down as CEO and made finding those 14 people my singular focus. Oh, man, that's some hardcore shit right there. We're only on page eight. Man, this feels like right now I'm struggling between doing everything myself we're off script here, folks, and getting my um, minions trained up and out on appointments and processes and everything else. And um, yeah, I don't feel like I'm working on my one thing. Back to the book. This time, the earth really did move. Within three years, we began a period of sustained growth that averaged 40% year over year for almost a decade. We grew from a regional player to an international contender. Extraordinary success showed up, and we never looked back. As success begat success, something else happened along the way. The language of the one thing emerged. Having found the 14, I began working with our top people individually to build their careers and businesses. Out of habit, I would end our coaching calls with a recap of the handful of things they were agreeing to accomplish before our next session. Unfortunately, many would get most of them done, but not necessarily what mattered most. Results suffered, frustration followed. So, in an effort to help them succeed, I started shortening my list. If you could do just three things this week, if you could do just two things this week, and finally, out of desperation, I went to small as I could possibly go and asked, what's the one thing you can do this week, such by doing it, everything else would be easier or unnecessary. And that's the most awesome thing. And the most awesome thing happened. Okay, hold on. Let's read that again. What's the one thing you can do? This week, such that by doing it, everything else would be easier or unnecessary. <clears throat> Man, I think I'm going to highlight this. For me, I'm off, off script right now, right? Um, I think I need procedures, man. I need some standard operating procedures. So bear with me here. I'm going to write myself a little note. If I had a way for people to just... Log into my Evernote or maybe a PDF or something like that, and they could read exactly what to do. Then I could just say, hey, go do this. All right, back to the book. Back to the book. And the most awesome thing happened. Results went through the roof. After these experiences, I looked back at my success and failures and discovered an interesting pattern. 
where I'd had a huge success, I had narrowed my concentration to one thing. And where my success varied, my focus had two. And the light came on. Going small. Hold on. Before I do that, is this clicking with anybody? I feel like every time I read this book, something else clicks with me. Going small. Back to the book. If everyone has the same number of hours in a day, why do some people seem to get so much more done than others? How do they do more, achieve more, earn more, have more? If time is a currency of achievement, then why are some able to cash in on their allotment for more chips than others? The answer is they make getting to the heart of things the heart of their approach. They go small. When you want the absolute best chances to succeed at anything you want, your approach should always be the same. Go small. Going small is ignoring all the things you could do and doing what you should do. It's recognizing that not all things matter equally and finding the things that matter most. It's a tighter way to connect with you. Uh, It's a tighter way to connect what you do with what you want. It's realizing that extraordinary results are directly determined by how narrow you make your focus. It's realizing that extraordinary results are directly determined by how narrow you make your focus. Man, that, that boy, that hits me. I feel like I spread out a little of late. Got to narrow back in, right? Sometimes you got to go big to go small. See what works, pull back, do less. I don't know. Back to the book. The way to get the most out of your work and your life is to go as small as possible. Most people think just the opposite. They think big success is time-consuming and complicated. As a result, their calendars and to-do lists become overloaded and overwhelming. Success starts to feel out of reach, so they settle for less. Unaware that big success comes when we do a few things well, they get lost trying to do too much and in the end accomplish too little. Over time, they lower their expectations, abandon their dreams, and allow their life to get small. This is the wrong thing to make small. You have only so much time and energy, so when you spread yourself out, you end up spread thin. You want your achievements to add up, but that actually but that actually takes subtraction, not addition. You need to be doing fewer things for more effect instead of doing more things with side effects. The problem with trying to do too much is that even if it works, Adding more to your work and your life without cutting anything brings a lot of bad with it. Missed deadlines, disappointing results, high stress, long hours, lost sleep, poor diet, no exercise. Damn, sitting home and miss moments with family and friends. Actually, I think I'd probably qualify for all that. All in the name of going after something that is easier to get than you might imagine. Going small is a simple approach to extraordinary results. And it works. It works all the time, anywhere, and on anything. Why? Because it has only one purpose, to ultimately get you to the point. When you go as small as possible, you'll be staring at one thing, and that's the point. And that's the end of chapter one. I'm going to go back here. The problem with trying to do too much is that even if it works, adding more to your work and your life without cutting anything Brings a lot of bad with it. Missed deadlines, disappointing results, high stress, long hours, lost sleep, poor diet, no exercise, and missed moments with family and friends. All in the name of going after something that is easier to get than you might imagine. Oh. See, every time I read this book, different parts, I'm highlighting different parts. 
I feel like I've done this. You know, I've been getting after it. Um, and that's a good thing. But I think I need to cut back again. I think I need to focus on my one thing. I think my one thing right now is standard operating procedures. Chapter two, the domino effect. There's a quote in a corner. Every great change starts like falling dominoes. B.J. Thornton. In Leuwarden, the Netherlands, on Domino Day, November 13th, 2009, Weijers Domino Productions coordinated the world record domino fall by lining up more than 4,491,863 dominoes in a dazzling display. In this instance, a single domino set in motion a domino fall that cumulatively unleashed more than 94,000 joules of energy which is as much energy it takes for an average-sized male to do 545 push-ups. Damn. Each standing domino represents a small amount of potential energy. The more you line up, the more potential energy you've accumulated. Line up enough, and with a simple flick, you can start a chain reaction of surprising power. And Weiger's Domino Productions proved it. When one thing, the right thing, is set in motion, it can topple many things, and that's not all. In 1983, Lauren Whitehead wrote in the American Journal of Physics that he discovered that domino falls could not only topple many things, they could also topple bigger things. He described how a single domino is capable of bringing down another domino that is actually 50% larger. And in the book, they're showing a picture of one domino, then a domino twice as big, followed by a domino twice as big, and they start really small. But anyway, and six dominoes are huge. And there's also a picture here, too, showing the exponential um, geometric progression. It's like a long, long train. It starts out too slow to notice until it's moving too fast to stop. Do you see the implication? Not only can one knock over others, but also others that are successfully, success, successively larger. In 2001, a physicist from San Francisco's Exploratorium reproduced Whitehead's experiment by creating eight dominoes out of plywood each of which which was 50% larger than the one before. The first was a mere two inches, the last almost three feet tall. The resulting domino fall began with a gentle tick and quickly ended with a loud slam. Imagine what would happen if this kept going. If a regular domino fall is a linear progression, whiteheads would be described as a geometric progression. The result would defy the imagination. The 10th domino would be almost as tall as NFL quarterback Peyton Manning. By the 18th, you're looking at a domino that would rival the Leaning Tower of Pisa. The 23rd domino would tower over the Eiffel Tower, and the 31st domino would loom over Mount Everest by almost 3,000 feet. Number 57 would practically bridge the distance between the Earth and the Moon. Getting extraordinary results. So when you think about success, shoot for the Moon. The Moon is reachable if you prioritize everything and put all your energy into accomplishing the most important thing. Getting extraordinary results is about creating a domino effect in your life. Toppling dominoes is pretty straightforward. You line them up and tip over the first one. In the real world, though, it's a bit more complicated. The challenge is that life doesn't line everything up for us and say, here's where you should start. Highly successful people know this. So every day they line up their priorities anew. Find the lead domino and whack away at it until it falls. Man, I'm highlighting that. Find the lead domino. And whack away at it until it falls. What is my lead domino? I think my lead domino is 
um, waking up at 4.30 in the morning. The days I do that, everything goes much better. I have time to plan. I have time to think. I'm not rushed. I have time to work out. I get to make my lunch. So I follow my diet, um, eat healthy, make my coffee so I don't spend a shit ton of money, um, all that stuff. So back to the book. Why does this approach work? Because extraordinary success is sequential, not simultaneous. What starts out linear becomes geometric. You do the right thing, and then you do the next right thing. Over time, it adds up, and the geometric potential of success is unleashed. The domino effect applies to the big picture, like your work on your business, or like your work or your business, and it applies to the smallest moment in each day when you're trying to decide what to do next. Success builds on success, and as this happens over and over, you move toward the highest success possible. When you see someone who has a lot of knowledge, they learned it over time. When you see someone who has a lot of skills, they develop them over time. When you see someone who has done a lot, they accomplished it over time. When you see someone who has a lot of money, they earned it over time. The key is over time. Success is built sequentially. It's one thing at a time. Damn, I'm terrible at that. Sometimes I try and do so many things at once and I'm so impatient. I'm highlighting that. If you're watching the video on face or on uh YouTube, I do do one thing at a time. I'm so impatient. I know I have ADD too. The key is over time. With any luck, we're going to be alive, right? Chapter three, success leaves clues. Proof of the, oh, there's a quote here in the corner. It's, it is those who concentrate on, on but one thing at a time who advance in this world. Og Mendino. Proof of the one thing is everywhere. Look closely and you'll always find it. One product, one service. Extraordinarily successful companies always have one product or service they're most known for or that makes them the most money. Colonel Sanders started KFC with a single secret chicken recipe. The Adolf Coors Company grew 1,500% from 1947 to 1967 with only one product made in a single brewery. Microprocessors generate the vast majority of Intel's net revenue. And Starbucks, I think you know. The list of businesses that have achieved extraordinary results through the power of the one thing is endless. Sometimes what is made or delivered is also what is sold. Sometimes not. Take Google. Their one thing is search which makes selling advertising its key source of revenue possible. And what about Star Wars? Is the one thing movies or merchandise? If you guess merchandise, you'd be right, and you'd be wrong. Revenue from toys recently totaled over $10 billion, while combined worldwide box office revenue for the six main films totaled less than half that, $4.3 billion. From where I sit, movies are the one thing because they make the toys and products possible. Interesting. Yeah, I guess you're right. Without the movie, there wouldn't be any toys or products. So if you make a great movie, then the toys or products followed. Kind of like if I make a great podcast. All right, back to the book. The answer isn't always clear, but that doesn't make finding it any less important. Technological innovations, cultural shifts, and competitive forces will often dictate that a business is one thing evolve or transform. The most successful companies know this and are always asking, what's our one thing? Apple is in a study... Apple is a study in creating an environment where an extraordinary one thing can exist while transitioning to another extraordinary one thing. From 1998 to 2012, Apple's one thing moved from Macs 
to iMacs, to iTunes, to iPods, to iPhones, with the iPad already jockeying for the pole position at the head of the product line. As each new golden gadget entered the limelight, the other products weren't discontinued or relegated to the discount tables. Those lines, plus others, continued to be refined, while the current one thing created a well-documented halo effect, making the user more likely to adopt the whole Apple product family. Damn, that worked on me. You know, my, um, this is off the book. Uh, so <laughs> the iPad is so much better, that, at least in my opinion. Um, and for business, uh, obviously, I don't watch movies on it or play games. I, I use my shit for business. From a business point of view, for apps and everything else like that, like my starter Apple thing was my um, iPad Air 2. And it's just so much better than anything I've ever worked with. And now I have an iPad Pro and an iPhone. So, yeah, I guess that turned out to be true. Back to the book. When you get the one thing, you begin to see the business world differently. If today your company doesn't know what the one thing is, then the company's one thing is to find it out. So I think like, I think I have an idea what my one thing is, but maybe you don't. Maybe that's where you stop right now. You hit pause and you go, if today your company doesn't know what its one thing is, then the company's one thing is to find out. Seems like good advice. There's a quote here in the corner in red. There can only be one most important thing. Many things may be important, but only one can be the most important by Ross Garber. One person. The one thing is a dominant theme that shows up in different ways. Take the concept and apply it to people, and you'll see where one person makes all the difference. As a freshman in high school, Walt Disney took night courses at the Chicago Art Institute and became the cartoonist for his school newspaper. After graduation, he wanted to be a newspaper cartoonist but couldn't get a job, so his brother Roy, a businessman and banker, got him work at an art studio. It was there he learned animation and began creating animated cartoons. When Walt was young, his one person was Roy. For Sam Walton, early on, it was L.S. Robson, his father-in-law, who loaned him the $20,000 he needed to start his first retail business, a Ben Franklin franchise store. Then, when Sam was opening his first Walmart, Robson secretly paid a landlord $20,000 to provide a pivotal expansion lease. Albert Einstein and Max Talmond, his first mint, our Albert Einstein had Max Talmond, his first mentor. It was Max who introduced 10-year-old Einstein to two key texts in math, science, and philosophy. Max took one meal a week with the Einstein family for six years while guiding young Albert. No one is self-made. Yeah, that's so true. I had so many people help me, still help me today. Oprah Winfrey credits her father and the time she spent with him and his wife for saving her. She told Jill Nelson of, of the Washington Post magazine, if I hadn't been sent to my father, I would have gone in another direction. Professionally, it started with Jeffrey D. Jacobs, the lawyer's agent, manager, and financial advisor, who, when Oprah was looking for employment contract advice, persuaded her to establish her own company rather than simply be a talent for hire. Harpo Productions Incorporated was born. The world is familiar with the influence that John Lennon and Paul McCartney had on each other's songwriting success. But in the recording studio, there was George Martin. Consider one of the greatest record producers of all time. George has been referred to as the fifth Beatle for his extensive involvement on the Beatles' original albums. Martin's musical expertise helped fill the gaps between the Beatles' raw talent and the sound they wanted to achieve. Most of the Beatles' orchestral arrangements 
and instrumentation, as well as numerous keyboard parts on the early records, were written or performed by Martin in collaboration with the band. Everyone has one person who either means the most to them or was the first to influence, train, or manage them. No one succeeds alone. No one. And that is so true. Yes, we are self-made in the sense that we actually have to do it, but we never do it alone. Now, nobody can do it for us, right? I think that's where people get confused. Well, he didn't do it for me. I am self-made. That's not what we're saying. We're saying no one succeeds alone. You still have to do it all, but you can't do it by yourself. And people can't make you do it, and people can't help people who won't help themselves, right? But the point is, no one succeeds alone, so don't be lone wolf in this shit. You know what I'm saying? All right, back to the book. One passion, one skill. Look behind any story of extraordinary success, and the one thing is always there. It shows up in the life of any successful business and in the professional life of anyone successful. It also shows up around personal passions and skills. We each have passions and skills, and you'll see extraordinarily successful people with one intense emotion or one learned ability that shines through, defining them or driving them more than anything else. Like I like farming and smoking meats. I get it. Often the line between passion and skill can be blurry. That's because they're almost always connected. Pat Matthews, one of America's great impressionist painters, said he turned his passion for painting into a skill and ultimately a profession by simply painting one painting a day. Angelo Amorico, Italy's most successful tour guide, says he's developed his skills and ultimately his business from his singular passion for his country and the deep desire to share it with others. This is the storyline for extraordinary success stories. Passion for something leads to a disproportionate time practicing or working at it. That time spent eventually translates into skill, and when skill improves, results improve. Better results generally lead to more enjoyment and more passion and more time is invested. It can be a virtuous cycle all the way to extraordinary results. This is so true. I love podcasts. I love podcasting. I love smoking meats. I love investing. I love all these things. I'm highlighting that better results generally lead to more enjoyment. If you're good at things, you practice, you get better. You're better. You enjoy it more. The more you enjoy it, the easier it is to do it. And you just get better from doing it more. So yeah, it's see if you can't set a cycle. All right, back to the book. Gilbert to Hoboys, I hope I got that right. One passion is running. Gilbert is an American long distance runner born in Sangha, Burundi, whose early love of track and field helped him win the Burundi National Championship in the men's 400 and 800 meters while only a junior in high school. This passion helped save his life. I remember this. This is some hardcore shit right here. On October 21st, 1993, members of the Hutu tribe invaded Gilbert's high school and captured the students of the Tutsi tribe. Still a shame we didn't do anything about this. Those not immediately killed were beaten and burned alive in a nearby building. After nine hours buried beneath burning bodies, Gilbert managed to escape and outrun his captors to the safety of a nearby hospital. He was the lone survivor. He came to Texas and kept competing, honing his skills. Recruited by Abilene Christian University, Gilbert earned All-American honors six times. After graduation, he moved to Austin, where by all accounts, he's the most popular running coach in the city. To drill for water in Burundi, he co-founded the Gazelle Foundation, whose main fundraiser is, wait for it, Run for the Water, a sponsored run through the streets of Austin. Do you see this? Uh, do you see the theme running through his life? From competitor to survivor, from college to career to charity, Gilbert Gilbert's passion for running became a skill that led to a profession that opened up an opportunity to give back. 
the smile he greets fellow runners with on the trails around Austin's Ladybird Lake symbolizes how one passion can become one skill and together ignite and define an extraordinary life. The one thing shows up time and again in the lives of successful of the successful because it's a fundamental truth. It showed up for me, and if you let it, it will show up for you. Applying the one thing to your work and in your life is the simplest and smartest thing you can do to propel yourself forward or pro- propel yourself toward the success you want. The one thing shows up time and again in the lives of the successful because it's a fundamental truth. Mm. I hope this is working for you guys. Feels maddeningly slow for me. I read so much faster in my head. Maybe, maybe if I read out loud too, this will help me more, right? Sneaky way of helping myself. Back to the book, One Life. If I had to choose only one example of someone who has harnessed the one thing to build an extraordinary life, it would be American businessman Bill Gates. Bill's one passion in high school was computers, which let him develop one skill, computer programming. While in high school, he met one person, Paul Allen, who gave him his first job and became his partner in forming Microsoft. This happened as the results of one letter they sent to one person, Ed Roberts, who changed their lives forever by giving them a shot at writing the code for one computer, the Altair 8800, and they only needed one shot. Microsoft began its life to do one thing, develop and sell BASIC, B-A-S-I-C, it's a form of code, interpreters for the Altair 8800, which eventually made Bill Gates the richest man in the world for 15 straight years. When he retired from Microsoft, Bill chose one person to replace him as CEO, Steve Ballmer, whom he met in college. By the way, Steve was Microsoft's 30th employee, but the first business manager hired by Bill. And the story doesn't end there. Bill and Melinda Gates decided to put their wealth to work, making a difference in the world. Guided by the belief that everyone has equal value, they formed one foundation to do one thing to tackle really tough problems like health and education. Since its inception, the majority of the foundation's grants has gone to one area, Bill and Melinda's Global Health Program. This ambitious program's one goal is to harness advances in science and technology to save lives in poor countries. To do this, they eventually settled on one thing, stamp out infectious disease as a major cause of death in their lifetime. Which is a pretty awesome goal, by the way. At some point in their journey, they made a decision to focus on one thing that they would do for this vaccines. Bill explained the decision by saying, we had to choose the most impactful thing to get that we had to choose what the most impactful thing to give would be. The magic tool of health intervention is vaccines because they can be made inexpensively. A singular line of questioning led them down this one path when Melinda asked, where's the place you can have the biggest impact with the money? Bill and Melinda Gates are living proof of the power of the one thing. One thing. The doors to the world have been flung wide open and the view that's available is staggering. Through technology and innovation, opportunities abound and possibilities seem endless. As inspiring as this can be, it can be equally overwhelming. The unintended consequence of abundance is that we are bombarded with more information and choices in a day that our ancestors received in a lifetime. Harried and hurried and nagging sense that we attempt too much and accomplish too little haunts our days. Fuck. Harried and hurried, a nagging sense that we attempt too much and accomplish too little haunts our days. Oh, that's how I feel right now. I don't know if you remember the part. Um, um, 
I think it's in Lord of the Rings where Frodo's talking about um, just how tired he feels. Um, they use an um, J.R.R. Tolkien used one of my favorite expressions, um, like a piece of toast um, with not not enough butter. You know, so you're like scrape trying to scrape that piece of butter across that all toast. It's just not quite getting it done. Harried and hurried, a nagging sense that we attempt too much and accomplish too little haunts our days. Back to the book. We sense intuitively that the path to more is through less, but the question is where to begin. From all that life has to offer, how do you choose? How do you make the best decision possible, experience life at an extraordinary level, and never look back? Live the one thing. What Curly knew, all successful business, all successful people knew the one thing sits at the heart of success and is the starting point for achieving extraordinary results. Based on research and real life experience, it's a big idea about success wrapped in a disarmingly simple package. Explaining it is easy. Buying into it can be tough. Yeah, I'm struggling, boy. I'm struggling. So before we can have a frank heart to heart discussion about how the one thing actually works, I want to openly discuss the myths and misinformation that keep us from accepting it. They are the lies of success. Once we banish these from our minds, we can take up the one thing with an open mind and a clear path. Mm. All right. Before we move on to the, um, the next part, I want to go back and read harried and hurried a nagging sense. I think this like describes most of you know, city first world life, right? Harried and hurried and nagging sense that we, maybe it's just me. I'm reading into it. A nagging sense that we attempt too much and accomplish too little haunts our days. Hmm. I'm probably going to have to work on it. I'm going to dog ear that page. This is interesting doing this live too. I, by the way, I, I allow myself to change my mind later. I'm literally, we're literally doing this one at a time as we move forward. All right. Part one. The lies. They misled and derail us. They mislead and derail us. There is a quote. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Mark Twain. The trouble with truthiness. In 2003, Merriam-Webster began analyzing searches on their online dictionary to determine the word of the year. The idea was that since online searches for words reveal whatever is in our collective minds and the most searched for word should capture the spirit of the times. The debut winner delivered on the heels of the invasion of Iraq. It seemed everyone wanted to know what democracy really meant. The next year blog, a little made up word that described a new way to communicate top the list. After all the political scandals of 2005, integrity earned top honors. Then in 2006, Merriam-Webster added to it added a twist site visitors could nominate candidates and subsequently vote on the word of the year. You can say it was an effort to instill a quantitative exercise with qualitative feedback, or you could just call it good marketing. The winner by five to one landslide was truthiness, a word comedian, Stephen Colbert coined as truth that comes from the gut, not books on the debut episode of his comedy central show, the Colbert report. In an informational age driven by around-the-clock news, ranting talk radio, and editor-less blogging, truthiness captures all the incidental, accidental, and even intentional falsehoods that sound just truthy enough for us to accept as true. That is a problem. 
Um, the problem is we tend to act on what we believe, even when we believe what we believe isn't anything we should. As a result, buying into the one thing becomes difficult because we've unfortunately bought into too many others. And more often than not, those other things muddle our thinking, misguide our actions, and sidetrack our success. Boom! Like a nuclear bomb. Like angry story time with Jeremy. As a result, buying into the one thing becomes difficult because we've unfortunately bought into too many others. And... More often than not, those other things muddle our thinking, misguide our actions, and sidetrack our success. That is savage right there. I'm highlighting the whole thing. I feel like that sometimes. Back to the book. Life is too short to chase unicorns. It's too precious to rely on a rabbit's foot. The real solutions we seek are almost always hiding in plain sight. Unfortunately, they've usually been obscured by an unbelievable amount of bunk an astounding flood of common sense that turns out to be nonsense. Ever hear your boss evoke the frog in boiling water metaphor? Toss a frog into a pot of hot water, will jump right back out. But if you place a frog in lukewarm water and slowly raise the temperature, it will boil to death. It's a lie. A very truth, truthy lie, but a lie nonetheless. Anyone ever tell you fish stink from the head down? Not true. Just a fishy tale that actually turns out to be fishy. Ever hear about how the explorer Cortez burned his ships on arriving at the Americas to motivate his men? Not true. Another lie. Bet on the jockey, not the horse, has long been a rallying cry for placing your faith in the company's leadership. However, as a betting strategy, this maxim would put you on the fast track to the pauper's house, which makes you wonder how it ever became a maxim at all. Over time, myths and mistruths get thrown around so often they eventually feel familiar and start to sound like the truth. Then we start basing important decisions on them. The challenge we all face when forming our success strategies is that, just like tales of frogs, fish, explorers, jockeys, success has its own lies too. I just have too much that has to be done. I'll get more done by doing these things at the same time. I need to be a more disciplined person. I should be able to do whatever I want. I need more balance in my life. Maybe I shouldn't dream so big. Repeat these thoughts often enough, and they become the six lies about success that keep us from living the one thing. Let me read you that list right now. The six lies between you and success. Number one, everything matters equally. Number two, I've never had that problem with number one. Number two, multitasking. I am trying to beat that out of me. I I fight that one, man. Number three, a disciplined life. I think I'm there. I'm not saying I couldn't be better, but I sometimes... I am concerned that I'm a little too disciplined. Number four, willpower is always on will call. Yeah, I don't know about that one. My willpower is suspect sometimes. I don't rely on it. That's why I like to set up my clothes the night before, wake up early, you know, have just, I try and prepare for the worst. So, because I just know that's some shit I learned in the Navy too and the Boy Scouts. A balanced life. I knew that was bullshit. What the fuck is a balanced life? There's no such thing. That is a unicorn. Big is bad. I've never thought that, but I know a lot of people get hung up on it. The six lies are beliefs that get into our heads and become operational principles driving us the wrong way. Highways that end as bunny trails. Fool's gold that diverts us from the mother load. If you're going to max, if we're going to maximize our potential, we're going to have to make sure we put these lies to bed. All right. What are we at? 
43 minutes? Yeah, we'll keep going. Chapter four. Everything matters equally. There's a quote here in the corner. Things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Equality is a worthy ideal pursued in the name of justice and human rights. In the real world of results, however, things are never equal. No shit. Sorry. Uh, No matter how teachers grade, two students are not equal. No matter how fair officials try to be, contests are not equal. No matter how talented people are, no two are ever equal. A dime equals 10 cents and people must be, must absolutely be treated fairly. But in a world of achievement, everything doesn't matter equally. Equality is a lie. We've all known this. You know, I learned this at a very young age. Equality is a lie. Understanding this is the basis of all great decisions. So how do you decide? When you have a lot to get done in the day, how do you decide what to do first? As kids, we mostly did things we needed to do when it was time to do them. It's breakfast time. It's time to go to school. Time to do homework. Time to do chores. Bath time. Bedtime. Then, as we got older, we were given a measure of discretion. You can go out and play as long as you get your homework done before dinner. Later, as we become adults, everything becomes discretionary. It all became our choice. And when our lives are defined by our choices... The all-important question becomes, how do we make good ones? That's a good question. That's a hard one, right? Complicating matters. The older we get, it seems there's more and more piled on that we believe simply must get done. Overbooked, overextended, overcommitted, and the weeds overwhelmingly becomes our collective condition. That's when the battle for the right of way gets fierce and frantic. Lacking a clear formula for making decisions, we get reactive and fall back on familiar, comfortable ways to decide what to do. As a result, we haphazardly select approaches that undermine our success. Pinballing through our day like a confused character in a B-horror movie, we end up running up the stairs instead of out the front door. The best decision gets traded for any decision, and what should be progress simply becomes a trap. That feels like yesterday. Um, I got totally fucking derailed yesterday so easily, too. It's embarrassing. When everything feels urgent and important, everything seems equal. We become active and busy, but this doesn't actually move us any closer to success. Activity is often unrelated to productivity, and busyness rarely takes care of business. As Henry David Thoreau said, it's not enough to be busy, so are the ants. The question is, what are you busy about? Knocking on a hundred tasks for whatever reason is a poor substitute for doing even one task that's meaningful. Not everything matters equally and success isn't a game won by whoever does the most, yet that is exactly how most play it on a daily basis. I would say, though, that if you don't know what to do, just do a lot of shit and then go back and reevaluate. I mean, I'm not no fucking Gary Keller, right? But Sometimes you just have to do shit. Maybe that's just me. I'm a very kinetic person. I'd much rather do something than sit around and talk about it or read the directions or whatever. And that's, that's a very, it's a strength, but it's, it can also be expensive too. So there's a lot of experimentation in this stuff, but yeah, that is exactly how most played on a daily basis. All right. There's a quote here in the corner. The things which are most important don't always scream the loudest. Bob Hawk. Much to do about nothing. To-do lists are a staple of the time management and success industry. With our wants and others' wishes flying at us right and left, we impulsively jot them down on scraps of paper in moments of clarity or build them methodically on printed notepads. 
Time planners reserve valuable space for daily, weekly, and monthly task lists. Apps abound for taking to-dos mobile and software programs code them right into their menus. It seems like everywhere we turn, we're, we're encouraged to make lists. And though lists are invaluable, they have a dark side. While to-dos serve as a useful collection of our best intentions, they also tyrannize us with trivial, unimportant stuff that we feel obligated to get done because it's on our list, which is why most of us have a love-hate relationship with our to-dos. If allowed, they set our priorities the same way an inbox can dictate our day. Most inboxes overflow with unimportant emails masquerading as priorities. Tackling these tasks in the order we receive them is behaving as if the squeaky wheel immediately deserves the grease. But as Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke duly noted, the things which are most important don't always scream the loudest. Achievers operate differently. They have an eye for the essential. They pause just long enough to decide what matters and then allow what matters to to drive their day. Achievers do sooner what others plan to do later and defer, perhaps indefinitely what others do sooner. The difference isn't in intent, but in right of way. Achievers always work from a clear sense of priority. I can tell when I'm doing this really well. I know I'm doing it poorly. Of late, I have not been doing it well. Got some shit going on in my life, but achievers always work from a clear sense of priority. I think what I say, priority urgency. I don't know if that's a good synonym. I don't know if he means that or not, but I've always felt a sense of urgency. And I know on the days where I feel it stronger, I get a lot more done. I stay more focused. I get more, you know, the eight, that 20, the 80, 20 rule. Anyway, back to the book. Left in its raw state, a simple inventory, a to-do list can easily lead you astray. A to-do list is simply the things you think you need to do. The first thing on your list is just the first thing you thought of. To-do lists inherently lack the intent of success. In fact, most to-do lists are actually just survival lists, getting you through your day and your life, but not making each day a stepping stone for the next so you can essentially, so you can't, boy, I fucked that up. In fact, most to-do lists are actually just survival lists, getting through getting you through your day and your life, but not making each day a stepping stone for the next so you sequentially build a successful life. Long hours spent checking off a to-do list and ending the day with a full trash can and a clean desk are not virtuous and have nothing to do with success. Instead of a to-do list, you need a success list, a list that is purposely created around extraordinary results. To-do lists tend to be long Success lists are short. One pulls you in all directions. The other aims you in a specific direction. Damn. So to-do lists tend to be long. Success lists are short. One is a disorganized directory and the other is an organized directive. If a list isn't built around success, then there that's not where it takes you. If your to-do list contains everything, then it's probably taking you everywhere but where you really want to go. So how does a successful person turn a to-do list into a success list with so many things you could do. How do you decide what matters most at any given moment on any given day? Just follow Duran's lead. Duran cracks the code In the late thirties, a group of managers at general motors made an intriguing discovery that opened the door for an amazing breakthrough. One of their card readers input devices for early computers started producing gibberish. While investigating the faulty machinery, they stumbled on a way to encode secret messages. 
This was a big deal at the time, since Germany's infamous Enigma coding machines first appeared in World War I, both code-making and code-breaking were the stuff of high national security and even higher public curiosity. The GM managers quickly became convinced that their accidental cipher was unbreakable. One man, a visiting Western electric consultant, disagreed. He took up the code-breaking challenge, worked into the night, and cracked the code by 3 o'clock the following morning. <laughs> Boss. His name was Joseph M. Duran. Duran later cited this incident as a starting point for cracking even bigger code and making one of his greatest contributions to science and business. As a result of his deciphering success, a GM executive invited him to review research on management compensation that followed a formula described by a little known Italian economist, Vilfredo Pareto. Yeah, that's 80-20 rule, right? We we're talking about that earlier. In the 19th century, Pareto had written a mathematical model for income distribution in Italy that stated that 80% of the land was owned by 20% of the people. Wealth was not evenly distribu dis distributed. In fact, according to Pareto, it was actually concentrated in a highly predictable way. A pioneer of quality control management, Duran had noticed that a handful of flaws would usually produce a majority of the defects. This imbalance not only rang true to his experience, but he suspected it might even be a universal law. And that's what Pareto had observed might be bigger than even Pareto had imagined. While writing a seminal book, Quality Control Handbook, Duran wanted to give a short name to the concept of vital few and trivial many. One of the many illustrations in his manuscript was labeled Pareto's Principle of Unequal Distribution. Where another might have called it Duran's rule, he called it Pareto's principle. Pareto's principle, it turns out, is a is as real a law of gra as the law of gravity, and yet many people fail to see the gravity of it. It's not just a theory; it's a provable, predictable certainty of nature, and one of the greatest productivity truths ever discovered. Richard Koch, in his book The Eighty Twenty Principle, defined it. About as well as anyone, the 80-20 principle asserts that a minority of causes, inputs, and effort usually lead to majority of the results, outputs, and rewards. In other words, in the world of success, things aren't equal. A small amount of causes create most of the results. Just the right input creates most of the output. Selected effort creates almost all of the reward. And off script here, this is why I track things too, by the way. This is why you have to track things. You have to. Um, I've known about the 80-20 rule for a long time. For instance, just give me an example of my wholesale business. That's why I emphasize when I'm training people and helping people and we're doing our calls and all that. What's the one thing you need to do every day? Prospect. If you prospect, you'll set if you make calls, you'll set appointments. If you set appointments, you'll make offers. If you make offers, some of them will get accepted. So just to uh, put in a point, and there's a pretty here drawing of 20% of the effort gives you 80% of the results. That does seem to be true. At least in my life, Pareto points us in a very clear, I'm sorry, back to the book. Pareto points us in a very clear direction. The majority of what you want will come from the minority of what you do. Extraordinary results are disproportionately created by fewer actions than most realize. Don't get hung up on the numbers. Pareto's truth is about inequality. And though often stated as 80-20 ratio, it can take on a variety of proportions. True, depending on how you want to divide it up, right? Depending on the circumstances, it can easily play out as, say, 90-20, where 90% 90 of your success comes from 20% of your effort, 70-10, 65-5. 
but understand that these are all fundamentally working off the same principle. Duran's great insight was that not everything equals matters equally. Some things matter more than others. A lot more. A to-do list becomes a success list when you apply Pareto's principle to it. The 80-20 principle has one of the most important guiding the 80-20 principle has been one of the most important guiding success rules in my career. It described the phenomenon which, like Duran, I observed in my own life over and over again. A few ideas gave me most of my results. Some clients were far more valuable than others. A small number of people created most of my business success, and a handful of investments put the most money in my pocket. Everywhere I turned, the concept of unequal distribution popped up. The more it showed up, the more I paid attention. And the more I paid attention, the more it showed up. Finally, I quit thinking it was a coincidence and began applying it to the absolute principle of success that it is, not only to my life, but also in working with everyone as well. And the results were extraordinary. Um, I did this too with my life, prospecting. That's really what it comes to. If you're a salesperson, prospect, prospect, prospect. Extreme Pareto. Pareto proves everything I'm telling you, but there's a catch. He doesn't go far enough. I want you to go further. I want you to take Pareto's principle to an extreme. I want you to go small by identifying the 20%, and then I want you to go even smaller by finding the vital few of the vital few. The 80-20 rule is the first word, but not the last, about success. What Pareto started, you must finish. Success requires that you follow the 80-20 principle, but you don't have to stop there. It's a good point, right? Just getting to your one thing again. Keep going. You can actually take 20% of the 20% of the 20% and continue until you get to the single most important thing. See figure five, which, um, let's see, let's go back to figure five. So figure five is going from 25 things reduced 20% to five things reduced by, you know, do 20% to one thing. So just a visual representation of exactly um, what he's talking about. No matter the task, mission, or goal, big or small, starts with as, as large a list as you want, but develop the mindset that you will whittle your way from there to the critical few and not stop until you end up with the essential one, the imperative one the one thing. In 2001, I called a meeting of our key executive team. As fast as we were growing, we were still not acknowledged by the very top people in our industry. I challenged our group to brainstorm 100 ways to turn the situation around. It took us all day to come up with the list. The next morning, we narrowed down this list to 10 ideas. And from there, we chose just one big idea. The one that we decided on was I write a book about how to become an elite performer in our industry. It worked. Eight years later, that one book had not only become a national bestseller, but it, but also had morphed into a series of books with total sales of over a million copies. In an industry of about a million people, one thing changed our image forever. Now, again, stop and do the math. One idea out of 100. That is Pareto to an extreme. That's thinking big, but going very small. That's applying the one thing to a business challenge in a truly powerful way. But this doesn't just apply to business. On my 40th birthday, I started taking guitar lessons and quickly discovered I can give only 20 minutes a day to practice. This wasn't much, so I knew I had to narrow down what I learned. I asked my friend, Eric Johnson, one of the greatest guitarists ever, for advice. Eric said that if I could only do one thing, then I should practice my scale. So I took his advice and chose the minor blues scale. What I discovered was that if I learned that scale, then I could play many of the solos 
of great classic rock guitars from Eric Clapton to Billy Gibbons, and maybe someday even Eric Johnson. That scale became my one thing for the guitar, and it unlocked the world of rock and roll for me. The inequality of effort for results is everywhere in your life if you simply will look for it. And if you apply this principle, it will unlock the success you seek in anything that matters to you. There will always be just a few things that matter more than the rest, and out of those, one will matter most. Internalizing this concept is like being handed a magic compass. Whenever you feel lost or lacking direction, you can almost you can pull it out and remind yourself to discover what matters most. Pause here, man. Mm. Let me go back and read that. There will always be just a few things that matter more than the rest. And out of those, one will matter most. Internalizing this concept. Whenever I make that part of my morning routine. Let me just give myself a little note here. Big ideas. Number one, go small. Don't focus on being busy. Focus on being productive. Allow what matters most to drive your day. There's a guy at the office. I'm going off script here. I don't think he listens to my podcast, but I don't give a shit. He's a nice guy, right? But literally all he does all day is prepare food, clean up everybody else's mess, clean out the sink, like water plants, gets on, you know, and like I see him writing an offer like once a day. He must walk back and forth between where he sits and the fucking bar a thousand times. Always messing with something, right? Don't allow all these things you think you have to get done or you think are important to, um, to get in the way of the important stuff, man. Number two, go extreme. Once you figured out what actually matters, keep asking what matters most until there's only one thing left. That core activity goes to the top of your success list. Man. Normally for me, I would say it's prospecting, but I'm having a hard time getting the leads I have. So I think I need standard operating procedures. I need to go extreme. I need to just work on standard operating procedures until I have them all done. So I can just hand them off to somebody and they can do it. Number three, say no. Whether you say later or never, the point is to say not now to anything else you can do until your most important work is done. I'm pretty good at that. I still get sidetracked, though. I can work on that. Number four, don't get trapped in the checkoff game. Yeah, I used to do this a lot, but I don't don't fall for this anymore. If we believe things don't matter equally, we must act accordingly. We can't fall prey to the notion that everything has to be done. That checking things off our list is what success is about. We can't be trapped in a game of checkoff that never produces a winner. The truth is that things don't matter equally, and success is found in doing what matters most. Sometimes it's just the first thing you do. Sometimes it's the only thing you do. Regardless, doing the most important thing is always the most important thing. That seems so obvious, but I'm just going to I'm going to highlight that. Boom. So we want to do another chapter. How long is this number chapter? We're at an hour and 2 minutes. Let's see how long this chapter is. I know I'm having a little bit of a harder time reading. Yeah, we'll do one more. All right. How's this working out for you guys? Is this interesting? Um, If you'd like to share it when you use hashtag story time with Jeremy. Multitasking. So if doing the most important thing is the most important thing, why would you try and do anything else at the same time? It's a great question. 
In the summer of 2009, Clifford Nass set out to answer just that. His mission? To find out how well so-called multitaskers multitask. Nass, a professor at Stanford University, told the New York Times that he had been in awe of multitaskers and deemed himself to be a poor one. So he and his team of researchers gave... 262 students questionnaires to determine how often they multitask. They divide their test subjects into two groups of high and low multitaskers and began with the presumption that the frequent multitaskers would perform better. They were wrong. I was sure they had some secret ability, said Nass, but it turns out that high multitaskers are suckers for irrelevancy. They were outperformed on every measure. Although they'd convinced themselves and the world that they were great at it, there was just one problem. To quote Nass, multitaskers were just lousy at everything. Multitasking is a lie. Boom. Fortunately, I've been to deal with that in a long time. I do have a patience problem where I'm trying to do like too much at once and sometimes doing too much at once, but generally not altogether. Back to the book. It's a lie because nearly everyone accepts it, accepts it as an effective thing to do. It's become so mainstream that people actually think it's something they should do and do as often as possible. We not only hear talk about doing it, we even hear talk about getting better at it. More than 6 million web pages offer answers on how to do it, and career, career websites list multitasking as a skill for employers to target and for prospective hires to list as a strength. Some have gone so far as to be proud of their supposed skill and have adopted it as a way of life, but it's actually a way of lie, for the truth is multitasking is neither efficient nor effective. In the world of results, it will fail you every time. There's a quote here in red. Multitasking is merely the opportunity to screw up more than one thing at a time. Steve Uzel. When you try and do two things at once, you, you either, I'm sorry. When you try and do two things at once, you either can't or won't do well, do either well. If you think multitasking is an effective way to get more done, you've got it backward. It's an effective way to get less done. As Steve Uzel said, multitasking is merely the opportunity to screw up more than one thing at a time. Monkey mind. The concept of humans doing more than one thing at a time has been studied by psychologists since the 1920s, but the term multitasking didn't arrive on the scene until the 1960s. It was used to describe computers, not people. Back then, 10 megahertz was apparently so mind-bogglingly fast that a whole new word was needed to describe a computer's ability to quickly perform many tasks. In retrospect, they probably made a poor choice for the expression multitasking is inherently deceptive. Multitasking is about multiple tasks, alternatingly sharing one resource, the CPU. But in time, the context was flipped and it became interpreted to mean multiple tasks being done simultaneously by one resource, a person. It was a clever turn of phrase that misleading for even computers can process only one code at a time. When they multitask, they switch back and forth, alternating their attention until both tasks are done. The speed with which computers tackle multiple tasks feeds the illusion that everything happens at the same time. So comparing computers to humans can be confusing. People can actually do two or more things at once, such as walk and talk or chew gum and read a map. But like computers, we can't, what we can't do is focus on two things at once. Our attention bounces back and forth. This is fine for computers, but it has serious repercussions in humans. Two airliners are cleared to land on the same runway. A patient is giving the wrong medicine. A toddler is left unattended in the bathtub. 
what all these potential tragedies share is that people are trying to do too many things at once and forget to do something they should do. It's strange how someone over time, uh, it's strange, but somehow over time, the image of the modern human has become one of a multitasker. We think we can. So we think we should. Kids studying while texting, listening to music, or watching television. Adults driving while talking on the phone, eating, applying makeup, or even shaving. Fuck shaves. Whatever. Doing something in one room while men don't shave. They grow beards. Doing something in one room while talking to someone in the next. Smartphones in the hands before napkins hit laps. It's not that we have too little time to do all the things we need to do. It's that we feel the need to do too many things in the time we have. That's so me too. Shit. Like I'm not a multitasker, but this, this line right here. Sorry, I'm highlighting it. That's, that's the disadvantage to doing it this way. I'm going to read it again to just bury this in my mind. <clears throat> I can be taught slowly over time. It's not that we have too little time to do all the things we need to do. It's that we feel the need to do too many things in the time we have. So we double and triple up in the hope of getting everything done. And then there's work. The modern office is a carnival of distracting multitasking demands. While you diligently try to complete a project, someone has a coughing fit in a nearby cubicle and asks if you have a lozenge. The office paging system continually calls out messages that anyone with an earshot of intercom hears. You're alerted around the clock to new emails arriving in your inbox while your social media news feed keeps trying to catch your eye and your cell phone intermittently vibrates on the desk to the tune of a new text. A stack of unopened mail and piles of unfinished work sit within sight as people keep swinging by your desk all day to ask you questions. Distractions, disturbance, disruption, staying on task is exhausting. Researchers estimate that workers are interrupted every 11 minutes and they spend almost a third of their day recovering from these distractions. And yet amid all of this, we still assume we can rise above it and do what has to be done within our deadlines. All right, off book. When I'm having bad days, I notice I do this. I don't have that many bad days, but when I have them, I'm doing this kind of like going from one thing to another distracted and then back to it. And I forget and do something else. And I haven't finished the third thing. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying? You're juggling six things. You're not getting any of them done. You're just getting some of them done. All right, back to the book, but we're fooling ourselves. Multitasking is a scam. Poet, uh, poet laureate, Billy Collins summed it up. Well, we call it multitasking. What makes it sound like an ability to do lots of things at the same time. A Buddhist would call this monkey mind. We think we're mastering multitasking, but we're really just driving ourselves bananas. That's how it feels, too. I feel exhausted when I do this too much. Uh, Juggling is an illusion. We come by it naturally. With an average of 4,000 thoughts a day flying in and out of our heads, it's easy to see why we try to multitask. If a change in thought every 14 seconds is an invitation to change direction, then it's rather obvious we're continually tempted to try and do too much at once. While doing one thing, we're only seconds away from thinking of something else we could do. Moreover, history suggests that our continued existence may have required that human beings evolve to be able to oversee multiple tasks at the same time. Our ancestors wouldn't have lasted long if they couldn't scan for predators while gathering berries, tanning hides, or just idly by the fire after a hard day hunting. 
The pull to juggle more than one task at a time is not only at the core of how we're wired, but most likely a necessity for survival. But juggling isn't multitasking. Juggling is an illusion. To the casual observer, a juggler is juggling three balls at once. In reality, the balls are being independently caught and thrown in rapid succession. Catch, toss, catch, toss, catch, toss. One ball at a time. It's what researchers refer to as task switching. When you switch from one task to another, voluntarily or not, two things happen. The first is nearly instantaneous. You decide to switch. The second is less predictable. You have to activate the rules for whatever you're about to do. Swinging between two simple tasks, like watching television and folding clothes, is quick and relatively painless. However, if you're working on a spreadsheet and a coworker pops into your office to discuss a business problem, the relative complexity of those tasks makes it impossible to easily jump back and forth. It always takes some time to start a new task and restart the one you quit, and there's no guarantee that you'll ever pick up exactly where you left off. There is a price for this. The cost in terms of extra time from having to switch tasks depends on how complex or simple the tasks are, reports uh, reports researcher David, Dr. David Meyer. It can range from time increases of 25% or less from simple tasks to well over 100% or more for very complicated tasks. Task switching costs exacts a cost few realize are even paying. I've noticed too that when I do this, um, like I feel stressed, like spread over, like spread over toast too, but also I get very weary. Like my eyes are tired. I get confused, all that. Sometimes if I just take, just close my eyes for 10 minutes and my feet rested or go for a walk or something like that, we'll kind of reset it and I'll go back. But I know I guess kind of like one of my giveaways that I'm doing it, you know, is that, wait a second, why am I doing this? Or if you find yourself doing the same thing for the third time, I catch myself sometimes doing that. All right, back to the book. Brain channels. So what's happening? We're actually doing two things at once. It's simple. We've separated them. Our brain has channels, and as a result, we're able to process different kinds of data in different parts of our brain. This is why you can talk and walk at the same time. There is no channel interference, but here's the catch. You're not really focused on both activities. One is happening in the foreground and the other in the background. If you're trying to talk a passenger through landing a DC-10, you'd stop walking. Likewise, if you're walking across a gorge on a rope bridge, you'd likely stop talking. You can do two things at once, but you can't focus effectively on two things at once. Even my dog, Max, knows this. When I get caught up with a basketball game on TV, he gives me a good nudge. Apparently, background scratches can be pretty unsatisfying. Many think that because their body is functioning without their conscious direction, they're multitasking. This is true, but not the way they mean it. A lot of our physical actions, like breathing, are being directed from a different part of our brain than where focus comes from. As a result, there's no channel conflict. We're right when we say something is front and center or top of mind because that's where focus occurs in the prefrontal cortex. When you focus, it's like shining a spotlight on what matters. You can actually give attention to two things, but that is what's called divided attention. And make no mistake, take on two things and your attention gets divided. Take on a third and something gets dropped. It's like juggling, right? The problem of trying to focus on two things at once shows up when one task demands more attention or if it crosses into a channel already in use. When your spouse is describing the way the living room furniture has been rearranged, you engage your visual cortex to see it in your mind's eye. 
If you happen to be driving at the moment, this channel interference means you are now seeing the new sofa and love seat combination and are effectively blind to the car braking in front of you. That's why you don't text and drive too. You simply can't effectively focus on two important things at the same time. Every time we try and do two or more things at once, we're simply dividing up our focus and dumbing down all of the outcomes in the process. Here's a short list of how multitasking short circuits us. Number one, there is just so much brain capability at any one time. Divide it up as much as you want, but you'll pay a price in time and effectiveness. Number two, the more time you spend switching to another task, the less likely you are to get back to your original task. Man, I do this all the time. This is how loose ends pile up. Number three, man, I got some loose ends. Whoo, sorry. Number three, bounce between one activity and another and lose time as your brain and you lose time as your brain reorients to reorients to the new task. Those milliseconds add up. Researchers estimate we lose 28% of an average workday to multitasking and effectiveness. Number four, chronic multitaskers develop a distorted sense of how long it takes to do things. They almost always believe tasks take longer to complete than is actually required, which makes sense. I think I do the same thing sometimes. It's because you're not doing it right the first time. Number five, multitaskers make more mistakes than non-multitaskers. They often make poor decisions because they favor new information over old, even if the older information is more valuable. Hmm. I have to think about that one. Number six. Let me read number five again. Multitaskers make more mistakes than non-multitaskers. That's, that makes sense. They often make poor decisions because they favor new information over old, even if the older information is more valuable. Hmm. I'm going to have to think about that one a little bit more. Number six. Multitaskers experience more life-reducing happiness-squelching stress. With research overwhelmingly clear, it seems insane that knowing how multitasking leads to mistakes, poor choices, and stress, we attempt it anyway. Maybe it's just too tempting. Workers who use computers during the day change windows or check email or other programs nearly 37 times an hour. Being in a distractible setting sets us up to be more distractible. Or maybe it's the high media multitaskers actually experience throw and switching a burst of dopamine that can be addictive without it. They can feel bored. I don't, I don't feel this. I feel like I'm fucking shit up for whatever the reason, the results are unambiguous. Multitasking slows us down and makes us slower witted. Well, we don't need that. Do we Jesus? I don't anyway. <clears throat> Driven to distraction. In 2009, New York Times reporter Matt Richtel, hope I got that right, earned a Pulitzer Prize for national reporting with a series of articles driven to distraction on the dangers of driving while texting or using cell phones. He found that distracted driving is responsible for 16% of all traffic fatalities and nearly half a million injuries annually. Damn, 16%? Even an idle phone conversation when driving takes a 40% bite out of your focus and surprisingly can have the same effect as being drunk. The evidence is so compelling that many states and municipalities have outlawed cell phone use while driving. This makes sense. Though some of us at times have been guilty, we never condone it for our teenage kids. All it takes is a text message to turn the family SUV into a deadly two-ton battering ram. Multitasking can cause more than one type of wreck. 
We know that multitasking can even be fatal when lives are at stake. In fact, we fully expect pilots and surgeons to focus on their jobs to the exclusion of everything else. And we expect that anyone in their position who gets caught doing otherwise will always be taken severely to task. We accept no arguments and have no tolerance for anything but total concentration from these professionals. And yet, here the rest of us are, living a dollar standard. Do we not value our own job or take it as seriously? Why would we ever tolerate multitasking when we're doing our most important work? Man, I'm going to highlight that. Why would we ever tolerate multitasking when we're doing our most important work? I don't have a good answer for that. We shouldn't, right? Why would we ever tolerate multitasking when we're doing our most important work? Just because our day job doesn't involve bypass surgery shouldn't make focus any less critical to our success or the success of others. Your work deserves no less respect. It may not seem so in the moment, but the connectivity of everything we do ultimately means that we each not only have a job to do, but a job that deserves to be done well. Think of it this way. If we really lose almost a third of our workday to distractions, that can't mess full fuck up. That's true. A third. What is a cumulative loss over a career? Yeah, it's like a wasted life. I'm getting all worked up here. What is a loss to other careers, to businesses? You killing people by texting and driving? When you think about it, you might just discover that if you don't figure out a way to resolve this, you could in fact lose your career or your business or worse, cause others to lose theirs. Man, this one's getting heavy for me. On top of work, what sort of toll do our distractions take on our personal lives? Author David Crenshaw put it just right when he wrote, the people we live with and work with on a daily basis deserve our full attention. When we give people segmented attention, piecemeal time, switching back and forth, the switching costs is higher than just the time involved. We end up damaging relationships. I've probably done that. A lot. Every time I see a couple dining with one partner, trying earnestly to communicate while the other is texting under the table, I'm reminded of the simple truth of that statement. Big ideas. Distraction is natural. Number one, distraction is natural. Don't feel bad when you get distracted. Everybody gets distracted. Number two, multitasking takes a toll at home or at work. Distractions lead to poor choices, painful mistakes, and unnecessary stress. Number three, distraction undermines results. When you try and do too much at once, you can end up doing nothing well. Figure out what matters most in the moment and give it your undivided attention. In order to be able to put the principle of the one thing to work, you can't buy into the lie that trying to do two things at once is a good idea. Though multitasking is sometimes possible, it's never possible to do it effectively because you're always diverting your attention. And I think that's where we're going to end. So for those following along, we're stopping on page 53 at the end of chapter five. All right. So next week, we're going to pick up on chapter six, page 54. And we're probably going to read about the same number of pages. looks like I probably get this done in four or five. Maybe, I don't know how many pages we got. Yeah, it'll probably be five. We'll, we'll say six too, because we'll do a wrap up, right? We'll say six and I'll do a wrap up. 
All right. So, man, what are the big ideas out of the first five chapters of this book? So I'm just going to go through and read the highlighted parts of my notes, right? We're like doing it live. We'll do it live. For all the dedication and hard work, my life was in turmoil and it felt as if everything was crumbling around me. I was failing. Yeah. I feel like that now. I stepped down as CEO and made finding those 14 people my singular focus. What's the one thing you can do this week such by doing it, everything else would be easier or unnecessary? For me, that's got to be standard operating procedures. It just has to be. It's realizing that extraordinary results are directly determined by how narrow you can make your focus. Huh. How narrow you can make your focus. I wonder how I can apply that to writing my standard operating procedures. Like, I don't know, lock myself in the door. I don't know. I'll have to think about that. The problem with trying to do too much is that even if it works, adding more to your work and your life without cutting anything brings a lot of bad with it. Missed deadlines, disappointing results, high stress, long hours, lost sleep, poor diet, no exercise, and missed moments with family and friends, all in the name of going after something that is easier to get than you might imagine. Mm, yeah. All right. Now we're in the chapter two. I don't think it, this is a lot of Pareto's law. So I didn't highlight as much in here. That doesn't mean you didn't. I've just done a lot of work with this before. So every day they line up their priorities anew, find the lead domino and whack away at it until it falls. Mm, yeah. I wrote 4.30 a.m. Just, you know, I do a good job when I do that, which I do do most of the time. The key is over time. I'm so bad at this. God, patience. I, I probably should tell myself patience every day right on the wall when I wake up. The key is over time. Success is built sequentially. It's one thing at a time. You can't do it all at the same time. Patience, Jeremy. Patience, listener. Patience, RDA podcast listener. Maybe you have more than I do, probably. I like to remind myself of this. I don't really have a problem with it, but no one succeeds alone. No one. We have to do the work, but we get a lot of help. Better results generally lead to more enjoyment and more passion and more, t and more time is invested. This is, it can be a virtuous cycle all the way to extraordinary results. So yeah, when we first start anything, we're going to suck at it. Then as we get better, which means we have to track. So we know we're getting better, right? You like how we snuck in some tracking. So you have to be tracking your results and know you're improving. Then you feel better about improving. And as you get better, you have more fun doing it. So it's not as hard to do. Yeah. It's one of those things. I think I read that in um, that habit book I did. Episode um, 22, you only need enough willpower. I think it's further in this book too, because I've read this book three or four times. Um, you only need enough willpower to get it, to make it a habit. Once it's a habit, it doesn't require any willpower. So that was pretty, one of the savage things I learned. The one thing shows up time and again in the lives of the successful because it's a fundamental truth. Yeah, I would say at this point, he's uh, laid out a pretty, pretty good argument. Oh, this one hit. Uh, this probably, I don't know if this should be the first one or not. Harried and hurried, a nagging sense that we attempt too much and accomplish too little haunts our days. This, that fucking sentence haunts me. Harried and hurried, a nagging sense that we attempt too much and accomplish too little 
haunts our days. Mm. Uh, this is as it applies to me. Obviously, as you're reading, you should be going over yours, right? Like maybe you highlighted different things than I do. Actually, I'd be interested in that too. As a result, buying into the one thing becomes difficult because we've unfortunately bought into too many others. I think sometimes we call this cognitive dissonance, right? Where you have multiple belief systems operating on top over the top of each other, right? Um, how well we reconcile that depends on how successful we are. I'll give you another example. If you want to build a fortune 500 company and be a billionaire, but you think being big is bad. That's what we mean by cognitive dissonance. And that's what he's talking about here. As a result of buying into the one thing becomes difficult because we've unfortunately bought into too many others. And more often than not, those other things muddle our thinking, misguide our actions, and sidetrack our success. You can't, you, you can't have conflicting belief systems, right? So you might have to jettison something. Some shit's got to get cut, son. Sometimes it's the way it's got to be. Equality is a lie. We all know this one from grade school. All right. If you're fucking pussy social justice warrior, fuck off and don't come back on my podcast. Achievers always work. From a clear sense of priority. Um, I think I said it before too, when I said priority, I said sense of urgency. I'm not sure if that's hundred percent correct, but for me, it's urgency. I just got to find what um, priority urgency you find the most important thing, right? That's what he's saying here. Um, just giving you a synonym or at least the way I've thought of that one. I've kind of been good at that. I've always had a sense of, um, Sense of urgency. There will always be just a few things that matter more than the rest. And out of those, one will matter most. And I think for me, it's my morning routine. I have noticed a direct correlation between how well I do things in the morning, which is mostly wake up, work out, and do it early before my phone starts melting, right? Because we're in the business, at least in my business, I'm in the business of answering phones and texts, which I've been doing very well today because it's podcast day. But um, it's nice to get a shit ton of work. Nobody's bothering me. You know, Gina's in bed. Dogs are still asleep. Whole world's And I, I get like a good two hours of shit done before anybody even bothers me. I think that's a good thing. Regardless, doing the most important thing is always the most important thing. I can't remember that rap song. What is it? Um, Young Buck. The main thing is keep the main thing the main thing. There you go. Get a little rap shit in there, too. You guys love that, don't you? It's not that we have too little time to do all the things we need to do. It's that we feel the need to do too many things in the time we have. So double up and triple up. So we double up and triple up in the hope of getting everything done. Yeah. I think I, at this particular point in time, I'm always guilty of this, I think. Slow down. Patience. More is not the answer necessarily. I think sometimes it is. When I'm confused, I just do a lot of shit, hoping that some of it will work. I don't think that's necessarily bad, but I should I track and measure too, so I find out really fast what's working and what's not. Why would we ever tolerate multitasking when you when we're doing our most important work? What is our most important work? 
when I'm prospecting, I don't like to be interrupted. That is, um, I actually do more prospecting outside of my, um, live RDI wholesaling calls for that particular reason. Cause I'm dealing with a lot of people. I got a bunch of people there. I'm helping them out. I'm pulling comps. I'm giving, giving them pointers. I actually do much better when I'm on my own and not distracted, which is not a surprise. And that was the last one. So again, that puts us at the end of page 53 at the end of chapter five of the book, the one thing, the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results by Gary Keller. And we're going to end there this week, folks. So we're going to start. If you want to get ready for next week, it is page 54. We'll be starting on chapter six, page 54, a disciplined life. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Is that interesting? Did you enjoy it? What do you think? Was that helpful? Here's my plan at least for the short term. I need a smidge of a break. So we're going to, plus I need some focus and I'll just take you guys along for the journey. I'm going to have a rough few months coming up. Um, my main thing is keep the main thing, the main thing. You know what I'm saying? Actually, I think, um, Michael Dundon said that on his podcast too. go back and listen. The main thing is keep the main thing, the main thing. I think it might even been a quote. I don't know. Go back and check it out. But what we'll do is we'll work through this together because then I have no excuses for not doing it, right? Not going to not do it. So we'll just do it. We'll do it together. We're going to work through this book together. We're going to do it, I think, in six segments. So this should take us through the beginning of the year. I think I do have a few other people booked. So I'll do those those weeks. I'll work on getting um, 2017 booked up. Give me the break I need. Give me the time I need to find some new interesting guests, get to know them, learn about them, you know, that kind of thing. Also give me some time to get my head clear. Um, keep the main thing, the main thing. So that's what we're going to do. So I'll catch you guys next week. The beginning of chapter six. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, go to renegadetrick.com. If you're interested in attending any local meetings, Go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. And of course, you always go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And you know, I'm, you know, I'm doing it. As I wrap up this podcast, I want to take a moment to encourage you to do the things you need to do, become financially independent. Seriously, do shit. Just do shit. Equality is a lie. Life is not fair. Um, and at no time will there ever be some, anything like justice. Doesn't mean we shouldn't work towards it, but um, the fact of the matter is, what it really boils down to is our futures in our hands. You want to help your family, want to really solve a problem, you got to take responsibility for it, right? So whatever it is, pick a goal. I don't care how small it is. Maybe it's brush your teeth. Maybe it's make an offer. Maybe it's take that course. Maybe it's go jogging. I don't know what it is. Whatever it is, write it down, track it, hold yourself accountable, and do it. And I really appreciate everybody's attention. Until the next podcast, crush it.